You know, um, I can honestly say I've never been more grateful to be at Sanctuary than I am today right now. I think it's just the nature of times of tragedy and loss and grieving where you just want to be with your family, where you can be held close. And you guys really are already becoming family to me, and this is becoming home to me. And um, it's really good to be with you. Um, I'm coming in need of comfort the same way that, that you are. And um, there's a lot of, I want us to do. But it just felt like this morning that there wouldn't be a more appropriate way to start the message. And I can't think of, of a more appropriate way to honor God this morning than to honor these saints that we've lost, to honor these martyrs. Uh, think about the words of Revelation. These are they who have come out of great tribulation, washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, those who have not loved their own lives even unto death. So before we go further into the message, I just want to take a few moments to specifically remember uh, the nine people that were killed at Emmanuel AME Zion Church in Charleston, South Carolina this week. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45 years old, mother of three, a speech pathologist who was working on her doctorate. DePayne Middleton Doctor, 49, mother of four, admissions coordinator for the Learning Center at Charleston Southern Wesleyan University. Cynthia Hurd, who's 54, a librarian with Charleston County for 31 years an officer in Charleston's Public Housing Authority and the president of a nonprofit organization um, who also was involved volunteering for Habitat for Humanity. Uh, Susie Jackson, 87 years old, the oldest of those who were killed during Wednesday's prayer service, a longtime member of the church and a member of the choir and of the usher board. Ethel Lance, 70, uh, who was said to always be at the church on weekdays, including on Wednesdays, like this last one, cleaning the grounds uh, for classes and for Bible study, who also worked as an usher during the Sunday services. Clementa C. Pinckney, 41 years old, the pastor, who was also a state senator who had been preaching the gospel since he was 13 years old. Tawanza Sanders, who was 26, one year out of college when he was killed in Wednesday's shooting, uh, remembered as a quiet, warm, committed student who had been a barber there in town. Daniel Simmons, who was 74, pastor of a retired, uh, a retired pastor from another church in Charleston who came every Sunday at Emmanuel and also visited on Wednesdays for Bible studies. And then finally, Myra Thompson, who was 59, uh, who called the church a second home. She was the wife of a, a, a reverend who was vicar at Holy, at Holy Trinity Church in Charleston, uh, but she was in the process of becoming a minister and getting ordained herself, and so frequented the church as, as well. And I just... I just thought it would be good for us to take a, a moment to pause and to reflect and remember and, and to pray once more. Lord Jesus, you promised your disciples that it would be more expedient for you to go away because you said if you did, that you would send a comforter. And we're so grateful in a moment like this that's the primary way that your spirit is known as the comforter. And where our words fail us, we ask for the spirit of truth, the spirit of love and life and of creation. We ask for the comforter to come now uh, and to heal the broken hearts of your people in Charleston, uh, to heal the broken hearts of family members and friends, to meet with your people all across this land in a place of, of grieving and mourning. I keep thinking today of Paul's phrase in Romans that there really are these, these moments of wordlessness where there are only sighs and groans too deep for words. 
So we just invite you now, Spirit of God, to, in our wordlessness, to groan through us, to sigh through us. And we join even the prayers of the psalmist, uh, not just in asking for your comfort, not just asking for your care, but asking as a people, how long, O Lord, how long? We pray for your justice. We pray for your peace. We pray for your reconciliation. And we remember the lives of those martyred saints who point us towards the cross of Jesus all over again today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. I feel like in moments like these, the temptation is you have so many people who come to church, who come to a preacher or a pastor, who come looking for answers. Sometimes it is the world coming to us for answers. Sometimes we're looking for answers from one another. And I think in a moment like this, as much as that might seem like an opportunity, it's important that we recognize it as a temptation more so. Because there are, in fact, some moments in life where there are no answers, there are no explanations. It may be blasphemous, if I can say it that way, to offer them. I think often of when Jesus comes um, just after many people think it was his best friend Lazarus had died. We know that his sisters are grieving. They're angry at Jesus for not coming sooner. The mourners are everywhere. And you, you, you can just kind of feel whenever you read that text, the, the pregnant anticipation of the moment where now the Son of God is here, the person who uttered the Sermon on the Mount is here, everybody's upset, what is he going to say? What kind of wisdom will God himself impart in a moment like this? And we know the end of the story, we know that Lazarus is going to be resurrected a few moments later, and that's wonderful. It's easy to kind of skip ahead to that, but in this moment, no one knows that. And Jesus, when he comes, instead of saying anything to try to calm anybody down, instead of offering an explanation, instead of even explicitly offering resurrection hope, I think it's one of those powerful moments in the Gospels, that God himself weeps. Jesus weeps. And yet there's something in us that wants us, because we so need an explanation, we so need something that we can get our heads around, to where sometimes we will attempt to offer words of, uh, the, the, of, of, of ration, words of reason, where God himself would not dare speak. I think we need to be really cautious about that, that we would not uh, attempt to somehow uh, speak in a way and in a time and a place where even God would not offer words of comfort so much as the presence. I, I think there's just something uniquely compelling about the God who weeps with us, that in the contorted face of Jesus, that in the tears of Jesus, that the heart of God is made known in ways that words cannot. So um, I'm not making any attempt today at uh, bringing any explanations or of making sense of anything. I want to say right out of the gate that I don't think you can make sense of something like this, and it's not my job to try. What I do want us to do, though, is to go to the Scriptures, where as Christians we do come for comfort and for perspective, if not always for answers. Job... um, Chapter 38 is where we're going to be looking. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. We, uh, I do always try to preach from the lectionary. And my sort of compromise is that's my way of hopefully letting God assign the text. But, you know, I've got my Pentecostal, my hillbilly Pentecostal side. So what I do get to do is pick whichever one of the texts I want to preach. And sometimes I'll even go to like the alternate text, whatever. And that happened this week. Um, I'm in the midst of so much transition 
Cody texted me on Tuesday to find out what I was preaching, and I had no clue. And as I let things kind of settle, I just had this real sense that Job 38 was the one I was supposed to do. So um, that was the text I decided to do. I decided to call this message The Doors of the Sea uh, based on a verse here in Job that I really love. It's also a great book by the Eastern Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart, which I'll bring up more directly later. But it was so strange just for this to be the direction that I felt like I was supposed to go, not knowing what was going to happen in the days ahead. Um, Job is, some of you know, one of my favorite books in the Bible. I know for so many people it's cryptic and strange. I love it. I didn't love Job before I knew how to learn uh, to love poetry. And I will say that. If you don't love poetry, you won't love Job. Because there's so many things that are expressed that are, that are beautiful, that are elegant, but yet, I don't know, there's so much grief and heartache in it. Um, I think one of the great misunderstandings people have when they read the book of Job is that Job somehow gives an answer to human suffering. That Job somehow gives us an answer to um, this mystery of why terrible things happen to devout people, you know, like whatever. If you're looking for any of that stuff in the book of Job, let me just tell you, you, you will find none of that there. Job will take you deeper into the mystery. But actually what happens, and this is where people read Job wrong, it starts with the devil um, wanting to approach Job and to sift Job. God does give permission. I think people often then kind of think that's the frame for everything. We'll see God, or God allows all these things at least. I think what actually becomes clear by the time you get to the end of the book of Job is that there are many things that happen in the created order that are not somehow directly willed by God. That is the, the understanding of the world that Job and especially his friends have that needs to be deconstructed. So a lot more I could say about that, but let's just go right to the text. This is when God finally talks back. Everybody else has given in Job's words their windy speeches, and now God finally is going to talk and speaks to the wildness of things. Job 38, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. And I have never felt less like a man than when I read that verse. I'm going to tell you right now. It just it. I used to interpret the things that God says in the speeches as being harsh, like he's being severe with Job. I really don't read it that way now. I think if you pay close enough attention, I think the speeches of God in Job are quite playful. And that you get, if you read it kind of with that tone in mind, it changes a lot. But yes, I do not feel manly when I read that. When God says to you, gird up your loins like a man, I will question you and you shall declare to me. I'll ask you some questions, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? And verse 8 is my favorite. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stopped. The doors of the sea, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. One of the things you have to understand about the language of sea in antiquity, and especially in Hebrew mythology, is that the language of the sea is always related to chaos. 
the language of sea is always, um, it's intimately connected with the language of Genesis 1, that shapeless void that we get. Note that in the book of Daniel, for example, that the monsters come from out of the sea. The sea is the place where everything monstrous lives. The sea is the, is the place where all the mysteries lie beneath that we, we're scared to rouse up. The, the sea is always kind of a euphemism for everything that cannot be explained and everything that cannot be figured out. This is the reason, by the way, for example, that by the time we get to the book of Revelation, that when it describes the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, where, which is now joined as one, that specifically it says that there is no sea. Uh, this is hopefully comforting if you ever, like me, I used to read that and think, that's really terrible. Why, who wants to be in a heaven where there's no ocean? I personally think there will be plenty of ocean and plenty of waves. The point is not that there will not be water. The point is that there will be no sea. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more violence. There will be no more monsters. There will be no more uh, mystery that threatens to swallow us up. That, that's the kind of day that John is prophesying there. That's the kind of sea that's going to be eliminated. But in the meantime, and I think this is so much uh, the message of the book of Job, we still live in a world where there is a sea. There is chaos. There is violence. The the promise that we get here in Job 38 is that there is this way that God has set a boundary to the sea so that we don't live in a world where there is such relentless chaos and ugliness that it's all we get. You know, as we talked about a little bit last week, you know, that we, we are created in the image of God. And creation is created to be good. God blesses it and calls it good. We see the goodness of God in the world around us in so many ways. But it doesn't mean that the sea is eliminated. It doesn't mean there's not a sea. It doesn't mean that there's not chaos or a place for chaos. It doesn't mean that unexplainable things are not going to happen. And what I think the book of Job opens us up for that is so important for us to hear in a moment like this is that we live in a world that is so far away from what God intended. We live in a world that is so far away from what God had, had in mind and certainly you know, far away from the world that, uh, that God intends when he makes all things new. In this time, in this place, there are many things about the world that we live in that are broken and fallen. There are principalities and powers that have a kind of authority in the time. You know, the scripture refers to Satan as the prince of the power of this age, of this present time. There, there is space for all of that now. And I think it's really important that in light of tragedy like this, that Christians in an attempt to comfort don't jump too quickly to something like, don't worry, God is in control. I understand why people find that to be a comforting phrase. Me personally, not quite so much, and it is rarely something that I say, especially when people are suffering. God is in control. I believe that Jesus is Lord, but to say that Jesus is Lord and to say that God is in control is not always to say identically the same thing. I believe that God is in control in the sense that there is a big giant story that started long before we got here, a story of redemption that will go all the way forward into a place of completion where God does wipe all of our tears and does remove all of the sorrow and all the affliction, there's a beautiful story. God is in charge, ultimately, of that big story and bringing these good ends to pass. But in the here and now, God is not in control. If what you mean by that is that God is micromanaging the universe and that everything that happens in the world now in its fractured, broken state 
is somehow directly an expression of the will of God. It is not. It is just not. And I just think it's so important that we establish that. Because in a sincere attempt to be hopeful, to be encouraging, we say things that I think indirectly impugn the good character of God. You know, When I see something like what happened in Charleston a couple days ago, I see something that is, um, on its own terms, is meaningless, evil, and bad. I think that should be said. It's just bad. There is nothing intrinsically good in it. The, the, the message of the gospel is not that there is intrinsic good in suffering and pain. I want to say this really slow. Go ahead and take my time here. Is that all right? Like, it, the message of the gospel is not that there's ever intrinsic good in death, suffering, and pain. Yes, God can bring good things, can bring beauty even out of those things. So in a situation like this, if you ask me where I see God at work, I don't know how many of you watched this. For me, it was hard for me to watch, but uh, I guess that was two days ago. They did just like the preliminary arrangement. I guess I suppose that's the arraignment for the young man, the 21-year-old man who uh, slaughtered these nine people. And so you see him out on the video screen with a vacant look in his eyes. So, so sad just to see the level of deception there and, and know, of course, this is a man also for whom Christ died. But as he's standing there, uh, one by one, members of the families got up and began to speak words of forgiveness. Just chilled me to the bone. I'm speaking their pain, naming the sin, naming what they'd lost, but speaking God's forgiveness. Never forget the lady who said, God has forgiven you. God forgi-. I mean, it was just what, so powerful through their tears to hear them speaking words of forgiveness in life. So if you ask me in a situation like this, where is God at work and what is God doing? I do know that much. That's God at work. That is God doing something. That is God using the legacy of these brothers and sisters and taking the, the, the message of Jesus and his love deeper and further in the world. We see God doing redemptive things, but it does not mean that the pain and suffering have some kind of value in and of themselves. Here's the thing I want to communicate very strongly this morning. In Christian tradition, death is not our friend. Death is an enemy to be conquered. And the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus is that death does not get the final word. That Jesus overcomes the powers of death, hell, and the grave. If this story is not long, and that, that has to be said too, if we don't have the perspective of eternity, if we don't believe that there's a life beyond this one, things that happen like this week can be nothing but bad news ever if there's not a way that God is ultimately working to bring all these things to right. It's only in view of the world that's coming and the redemption that's yet to come that we can get any sort of sense of comfort from what's happening. Because let's just be clear, uh, what happened on Wednesday sucks in every conceivable way. It sucks. It is bad in every possible way. And, and, and it, is, it, it brings me no comfort. I don't think it brings anybody real comfort who's paying attention. Uh, any hope in life to say, God's sovereign, God's in control, and everything's okay. I actually think it's the people who follow Jesus and who have an understanding of the world as God intended to become who most should be the ones who say, this is not okay. There's nothing about this that's okay. We're not supposed to be okay with it. I referenced before in the prayer uh, the way that David prays that. How long, O oh Lord? Like we're not supposed to be okay with the world as it is. It's deeply not okay. Okay. 
one of the things that makes me love Jesus all the more is that I don't believe that Jesus is okay with this. He's not all right with that. And he is going to make all things right. But now we're in this in-between season where we're not there yet, where there is chaos. There are boundaries to the sea, but there is still a sea. I just, I don't know, maybe you guys don't get this a lot, but I find almost everywhere that when people are suffering and they're in hurt, out of our desire to give them something they can, that we can grasp onto mentally, really in, the, in a way we want to comfort ourselves because we want a world with order again. We want a world that we can understand. I feel like we end up saying the most terrible things in moments like that. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you were suffering in a, a profound way, like a deep grief, and someone came along and they said to you, they proclaimed the good news to you, God has a plan. God's not surprised this was all part of the plan. Oh, please don't say that to someone whose daughter has been hit by a bus. Paul showed me this delightful text between service that was morbidly funny, but I love it. Like young guy finds out he gets cancer and people are saying it's part of the plan. It's got a little, you know, wipe off board where God is saying, you know, making a list of things to do. Like, you know, create everybody, bless the creation, give Steve cancer. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's morbid. But I think like, I think that idea is worth mocking. Like I really do. It is not the plan of God to make people suffer. And God is not the puppet master pulling strings in order to teach people lessons. I think we need to be careful about that too. Well, this such and such happened so we could learn a lesson. There may be lessons to be learned, but God didn't do it just in order to teach somebody something. That's, that's horrible. The lives that were lost on Wednesday, these aren't allegories. These are people's lives here. These are, these are real people here. And, and, and there is no comfort for me in saying, well, it's all part of God's plan, or, and I hate this even worse, um, I'm sure God is working this somehow to bring glory to himself through this. No, 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 no. The glory of God is in the way that resurrection triumphs over death and defeat, not in death itself. Do you see what I'm saying? God may be doing something redemptive through it, because God's always doing redemptive things through that which is, which is broken in some way. But, but, but the glory of God is not through the suffering in and of itself. I just find that so often we, in an attempt to find some kind of comfort, we cling to this idea of a sovereignty of God that sounds good for about two minutes until you really think about it or until you're the one suffering themselves. So if your idea of how God works is God orchestrates everything, God is always responsible, you know, for me, the furthest working out of this is that whole notion of double predestination, you know, that God, God orchestrates everything, and before time, he decides who's going up and who's going down, and no matter what happens from day to day, it's all just working out the perfect plan of God. Let me say this in the least offensive way possible. This is going to be my soft version of that, double predestination, all those kinds of things, and this is me saying it nicely. It is a vile, abominable doctrine of demons. It is a damnable teaching. It's apostate Christianity. That's, that's what I actually think about it. I don't even think I'm playing. I'm like, I mean, I think it was uh, Wesley who said, dealing with some of the radical Calvinists of his day, with a God like that, who needs a devil? Right. I think about that often. If you've got a God like that, who needs a devil? If God is doing all of these things to bring some kind of glory to himself, you know, just for giggles, you know, pulling all the strings. That, the, 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 what's the problem with a God like that? You could never love him. 
you ought not love him because that God doesn't look like Jesus. That's not the God you get. That's a God who you might respect and admire in a grudging way for being powerful, but you can't love a God like that. The, the, the reason that we love God the way that we do is because God has been revealed to us through, again, the contorted face of the Jesus who weeps for us and who enters into our sin and suffering and death and climbs on that cross precisely then to share and to, to take all the pain and suffering of the world in and onto himself. That's what God looks like. God looks like Jesus. That's the God who's revealed to us through Scripture. Not an, uh, a cold, philosophical being who is uh, playing a game of chess in a kind of interesting way, and we're just watching it. Is, it, I mean, is anybody hearing me? I feel like I was somebody, somebody, I, I know every once in a while I'll get people who say, if I, I'll talk like this every so often, and every so often someone is going to say, well, it sounds to me like if you think like that, like you're judging God. I, I'm not judging God because that's not who God is. But if he were like that, then he'd be a monster, and I would not follow him. I would rather roast in hell forever. I'm not kidding, than to bow my knee to someone that diabolical. The reason I feel like I can talk like this is because I'm that convinced that that's, this is not at all who God is. The God, that, the God that we have, the God that we get in Christ Jesus is the one who weeps and mourns with us in our weeping and mourning. And the promise of the gospel is that the day is going to come when he's going to wipe all of our tears. He's going to make all of this right somehow. Everything that's not sorted will one day be sorted. That is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the resurrection. And it allows us to be in a moment like this one and to feel the pain and not sugarcoat it and not say it's okay when it's not okay and that it's fine when it's not fine and not say it's clearly all part of God's cosmic plan when, in case I haven't been clear enough yet, there's not always a cosmic plan except for this one. And I do believe this. God's cosmic plan is that uh, between this work that started when Jesus came, well, no, it started in creation, really. But between then and the finish that's yet to come, God is working in such a way as to reconcile, redeem, restore, to bring the world to that day where he does wipe all tears away. That is God's plan. God's plan, and, it, and it's, it's already started, already through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Death has been defeated. But the implications have not been worked out yet. Paul puts it so beautifully that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the power of death was stripped and exposed and mocked. You know, he's won this victory already. And the time is coming when that's going to work all the way out. So if anybody ever wants to know what I think about God's plan, that's the plan I believe in is that God is working here and now to bring us to that day when he's going to make all things new. I believe in that plan. I also believe that while God is accomplishing that plan in this time, in this space, in this created order, there's still a whole lot of chaos. There are a lot of things that hurt. There are a lot of things that burn and sting, and they're supposed to. If we ever get to a place to where we can look at suffering like this and put our hands in our pockets and say, no big deal. After all, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. That's not, that's not even appropriate. I actually think that what happens the closer we get to Jesus is that we become more sensitive to the suffering of the world in this way. Our hearts break easier. So instead of being like, oh, no, it's fine, no big deal, your heart gets so tender that you can barely take it. I don't know if anybody's felt that these last few days, but just feeling that, 
that the Spirit of God is, again, is the Spirit who, who weeps and groans. And to be in touch with God's Spirit is not to be living the happy, victorious life where you never feel bad things, but to allow space for the weeping and groaning and sighing that the world as it is now is not yet right, to feel not okay. I, I believe that. I think that in many ways, um, the, the more in touch we get with the heart of God, the less okay we get with the world as it is. And there, there, there's nothing wrong with this. I, I, I don't want to say that that doesn't mean that there's not responsibility for us as the church to do something in response to things like this. I, actually, I think that we have a lot of responsibility. I just think that always in the aftermath, we don't know immediately what that is. What we can know for certain, uh, if we're paying any attention to what's happening in the world in the last few months, is that there is deep, deep racial discord in this country that, that simply must be healed. And those of us who profess to follow Jesus must seek and pray diligently to figure out how God would lead us to bring healing in these areas in our own communities. We must. We must, I, I didn't say this in the first service, we must acknowledge our own complicity in these systems. We must acknowledge our own complicity in these systems. I don't want to hear another middle-aged, middle-class white guy get on a cable news talk show and tell me about how nothing is my fault, I love everybody. We, we all share in some of these cultural problems, deep systemic things that create this kind of brokenness. And we have to ask God by his spirit to search us and to direct us. What can we do to repent? What can we do to make this right? What can we do where we live to, to change the temperature, to change the culture? I'm not getting into a whole thing today, but I think this whole issue of even how we think about guns, people in the church have to think and pray about this deeply. I don't have a simple solution to you, but what I will say is I reject this idea that church is the place where we come together to be spiritual and people who are discerning the scripture and God's word and God's spirit have no authority to speak about anything that happens in real life. I just about cussed right there to say what I think about that. You know, I, I really get tired of that. Like this kind of like, you know, my pastor's a nice guy and I like what we do on Sundays, but the cable news commentary is what tells me what to really believe about real life. I, I reject that. Uh, the, you know, I just felt a mean streak right there. And this is, I'm trying to get all, I want to get to the comfort of God. And if those folks most shape your life and values, I would encourage you to pay your tithes to them and see if they show up at the hospital when you're sick. See if they'll bless your babies, marry and bury your grandparents. See if they'll hold your hand and be the, oh man, I don't even know where that came from. Like try that out, right? I just think there's so... It, to me, it's, there's something so deeply, so deeply distorted about that whole kind of thinking, you know? I, I, don't, I don't know what it all looks like, but I definitely believe that what we believe about God has real implications in the world and how we think about these things. And sorry to offend you, I am a citizen of the kingdom more than I'm a citizen of any nation here. And the constitution that I adhere to and that I honor is Matthew 5 through 7. So there you have it. I don't even know that this is the appropriate space for this. This is just stuff I'm feeling today. These are reasons why we have to care about these things enough to struggle with them in community, honestly, and discern how God's spirit would work in us to bring peace and reconciliation. Good grief. Um, but in this moment, in this moment, um, 
there, there's, just, there's just a lot of pain. And I think what I wanted to, um, where I'd love to take us to close, I feel like I've said a lot of things by now, but I do, I do just believe it changes so much when we come to really believe that death is the enemy, uh, that God comes to, uh, to overthrow and to destroy. And that rather than seeing a God who's somehow cooperating with the forces of uh, death, hell, and the grave, that God subverts them. And I mentioned earlier, you know, this book, uh, David Bentley Hart, Eastern Orthodox theologian, wrote this book called The Doors of the Sea, which specifically was in response to the tsunami in 2004 that just w- devastated so many lives. And it's, it's a beautiful book, only about 120 pages. But a lot of what motivated him to write was that he was hearing Christians say so many horrible things in the, oh, it's all part of the plan, it's fine kind of way. And I just think that even though it was in response to something very particular, for me, it's a really timeless work. And I say without exaggeration, it has two of my favorite paragraphs ever in the history of books. And um, I, I don't want to read too much, but I have to read this to you because I think I just need to be reminded of these words, and they comforted me this week. Hart talks about towards the end uh, the, how much that if we really think about it, some of the words that we try to offer people in their suffering when we try to comfort them, how hollow it rings. Uh, the, some of the things that we would say that like, okay, he wants to say in essence, if you wouldn't say something to a person who's grieving in mourning, if, if you wouldn't want to say it to them, maybe you shouldn't say it at all because it's not true. And jumping right in, then he says, and this should tell us something. For if we would think it shamefully foolish and cruel to say such, thing in, such things in the moment when another's sorrow is most real and irresistibly painful, then we ought never to say them. Because what would still our tongues would be the knowledge, which we would possess at the time, though we might forget it later, that such sentiments would amount not only to an indiscretion or words spoken out of season, but to a vile stupidity and a lie told principally for our own comfort, by which we would try to excuse ourselves for believing in an omnipotent and benevolent God. In the process, moreover, I love this, we would be attempting to deny that man a knowledge central to the gospel. The knowledge of the evil of death, its intrinsic falsity, its unjust dominion over the world, its ultimate nullity, the knowledge that God is not pleased or nourished by our deaths, that he is not the secret architect of evil, that he is the conqueror of hell, that he has condemned all these things by the power of the cross, the knowledge that God is life and light and infinite love, and that the path that leads through nature and history to his kingdom does not simply follow the contours of either nature or history or obey the logic imminent to them, but is open to us by the way of the natural and historical absurdity or outrage of the empty tomb. And I will say amen to that. So, so powerful. And one more paragraph just because I really want to. So Hart goes on to say, Until that final glory, however, the world remains divided between two kingdoms where light and darkness, life and death, grow up together and await the harvest. In such a world, our portion is charity and our sustenance is faith. And so it will be until the end of days. As for comfort when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, hear this, that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. Such faith might never seem credible to someone like Ivan Karamazov from uh, Dostoevsky's novel or still the disquiet of his conscience or give him peace in place of rebellion. 
but neither is it a faith that his arguments can defeat. For it is a faith that set us free from optimism long ago and taught us hope instead. Now we are able to rejoice that we are saved, not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace, that God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great synthesis, but will judge much of history false and damnable. They will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes, and that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, for the former things will have passed away, and he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Would you stand with me? Lord, my heart is still broken, and yet I feel your fire in my bones right now. When we remember together the kind of God you are and the kind of gospel we've been given, thank you, Lord, that you don't pat us in the head. You don't pat us on the head when we're grieving. Thank you that you don't dismiss our mourning. Thank you that you don't respond to the deep sighs and agony of our hearts with trite answers. Thank you, Lord, that instead you come amidst your people and you grieve with us. Thank you for the presence of God that is able to sit with those who are mourning and is able to sit with those who have no answers. And that rather than giving something uh, like an explanation, you give us something so much better and that you offer us your presence, Lord. Thank you for your presence even now. We trust you to mediate that same presence in Charleston this morning and across uh, Churches everywhere right now. And Lord, finally, we would just ask you this morning, um, Lord, we, we, knowing that we don't even know where to begin to pray about all of this, but we know this somehow, Lord, that as we come to your table in just a few moments, this meal always brings us healing. This meal always meets us in our own broken places. And this meal also has a way of, of consecrating our own brokenness so that you would send us out to be broken on behalf of the world. Lord, I pray that rather than aspiring all the time to be whole, that we would be comfortable, Lord, or at least that we would be open and accepting to all the ways that we need to be broken open, uh, that we need our own hearts to be broken, that we need our own lives to be poured out and spilled out, that instead of self-protecting our own hearts and our emotions, that we, like you, um, would, would give everything that's in us freely in the same way that you did for us on the cross. We pray, Lord, you would make us instruments of peace for the healing of the world. Not that we think we have great answers, not that we think that we're smart, but because, Lord, we so want to offer the same grace and the same healing and mercy that you've extended to us, to, to every person that we meet. So one more time, Lord, we pray for your comfort. We pray for your healing. And we pray that even in this, Lord, that even in this, that the light and hope of Jesus, that the relentless love of God will be made clear in a way that draws your sons and daughters home. You are the only one who brings peace. You are the only one who makes all things right. You are the only one who can make all things new, and we trust you. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.